Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we look at the latest numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics with the U.S. unemployment rate falling from 3.7% to 3.5% in December but amid signs of a deterioration in the labor markets and a wave of layoffs in the tech sector. We look at the trends in inflation and the Fed's interest rate campaign. Dick Bovey has new research on the long-term outlook for U.S. banks against the backdrop of fundamental changes in the U.S. and global economies. He'll tell us how we got here from the years of outsourcing and sending manufacturing and production overseas to the escalating debt levels and U.S. imports vastly exceeding exports. Dick Bovet says no economy can grow at rates remotely close to what the U.S. Fed has done in the past two decades. We'll talk about the EU, Brazil and lots more. I'm with Dick, the Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Welcome, Dick and Matt, for episode 51. Lots to talk about. Um, We're going to look at some new research by Dick on the news cycle that he's written about in the past, but he has new numbers and he digs a lot deeper, gets into the long-term outlook for banks. And we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, We had labor numbers out last week and more chatter about the interest rates um how, how did you see the numbers last week the job growth overall slowed to two hundred twenty-three thousand in december that was a two-year low um and we continue to see a lot of layoffs in the tech sector well i mean basically uh, you know i think that the market has made the decision to um kind of focus on all this short-term uh information you know what what did the fed say yesterday what was the latest numbers that just came out uh what is uh the impact on the market going to be you know wh- where where is the speculative edge you know at the moment and, and i think you know we've got to step back and forget all of that i think we've got to forget that there is a fed uh we got to forget you know the 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 near-term numbers and are the data numbers and and we've got to you know take a look at what are the key factors which are going to be driving the United States economy and the United States financial system over the next uh, you know 5 years and and I think those are very clear and I think at some point in time 
uh, you know, the, the the commentators and the pundits have got to uh, redress these issues and start stop talking about who the latest Fed speaker is and what the latest Fed, uh, you know, talk is. The two main themes which we've talked about now for uh, virtually a year is have, have, are very clear. I think that uh, the, the world has broken apart. I mean, you now have uh, the North Atlantic countries, United States obviously included, and you got the Eurasian countries, you know, China obviously leading, and, and, and Russia as part of it. And those two blocks are going to contend, you know, for the greatest amount of power. And that's going to cause significant changes in, in the functioning of the U.S. economy. The second major thrust that you have to deal with, in 2002, for some reason, the U.S. government started pouring out a lot more uh, data on on uh, you know the, the the Federal Reserve activities on the on the growth in GDP, and and what you see is that you know real growth in the economy since two thousand two has been one point nine percent, and the growth in the Federal Reserve balance sheet has been eleven percent. So the Federal Reserve balance sheet is growing five times faster than the growth of the economy. You can't do that. You, can't, you just can't do that. No country can run its debt five times faster than it runs its increase in income. So, you know, I think that is is going to force a massive change in the availability of funds and the cost of funds. So th th there are these two forces, right? You, you've got to get this massive change in the structure of the U.S. economy away from the consumer and consumption and toward business and production. And you've got this massive change in the financial system. And I think people have to start thinking about those things, not, you know, that uh, Kashkari said something or, you know, the woman from uh, San Francisco said something or Powell said something. That's not meaningful. These two things are meaningful. On the headline CPI, not CPI, sorry, the um, unemployment number, the, the thing, the two things stood out at me. One was, you know, the seasonal adjustment slash the birth death. If you take that away, it was a, a negative um, number because without the adjustments, it would have been, I think, minus 244,000 jobs instead of the, the headline number. The, the second part was the average numbers worked, um, average hours worked dropped to, I think it was 34.3 hours per week, which was the lowest number since April of 2020. And one way you can look at the job report is to just, you know, num multiply the number of people working num times the hours of people working and try to figure out what would be normalized. And if you just take away that one tweet, there's another 180,000 jobs down. So the, the truth is that these numbers are coming in and it's, it's just a weird economy. And it always is as you're looking like you're heading into recession where the numbers are kind of lagging reality and the unemployment number really shows a weakening job market, which to some degree, if I were the Fed, I would be celebrating. I feel like what's happening from the Fed speakers talking, you know, they're very hawkish about how we're going to continue doing this, is I think they've got a number of meetings left before the U.S. Treasury has a real problem with with issuing new debt. And the interest of the, of the United States debt is so much a part of the budget that it becomes a massive problem that they're going to have to start up QE again. And I feel like they're just trying to be as hawkish as they can right before the pivot, because mm. when they pivot, it's going to look like, you know, they're going to have to declare victory and say, Hey, we've conquered inflation. And so they're trying to get as much out of this interest rate increase and in, quote QT, which, you know, this QT was not the QT we were promised in May of 
2022 when they were saying they're you know 75 billion dollars a month because they never even got to that level for a single month not to mention they never did it for the entire you know for the seven months they were promising not to mention that they promised i think in september that they would increase it by 50 percent so the fed is clearly being a lot more cautious than their speak and their actions so if you judge their actions it seems like they're nervous if you judge their speech they're very hawkish yeah, I think the second part of what you said uh, is very important. I think that uh, the Fed is insolvent. I mean, the Fed has more liabilities than it has in assets. And while the weekly report that they put out, which is the HR 4.1 report, you know, that report does not show this. The uh, financial accounts of the United States report that they put out does show it very, very clearly. And it shows that, you know, there is... Uh, a deficit, a net worth deficit of $1.1 trillion at the Federal Reserve at the current time because of the gap between liabilities and assets. And I think that is a tremendously constraining factor because how does the Fed get that net worth uh, adjusted? What does it do to do so? It's It can't you know, it can't go out and start buying. It can't pivot and go out and buy, you know, a new uh, QE because, you know, that that's simply going to explode inflation. It, it, it will turn around the inflation that they think that they've defeated immediately. So, you know, that's the point that I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is, okay, there's going to be a recession. Okay, you know, the, the Fed, you know, can't do what the market wants it to do in pivoting. So what is going to happen? And I think what we're going to have to do is rely much more heavily on the banking system because the banking system is flooded with excess cash at the present time. And if things get worse, the banks get more cash, right? Because everybody takes their money from wherever it is and, and, and they look for FDIC insurance on their money and they dump it in the banking system. So I, I, it, it, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm, I want to position myself to benefit by what is going to happen and stop worrying about what these Fed speakers, speakers are doing because I think they're in a box. They can't do anything different than what they're doing. And, and that's a real problem for the economy. Well, we're going to look at that uh, extensive report you did. It refers to everything you brought up there, Dick, and the banks and the outlook, very positive. Um, wonder what your thoughts are. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly sees inflation in the U.S. falling to just above 3% by the end of this year and then maybe to the Fed's target rate of 2% by 2025. Is, is that a little bit overly optimistic is that it, possible it, it, it may be aggressive but i think she's right i think that uh, you know i i don't see uh, any reason why inflation is is going to uh, you know turn around and go up at the moment you know the federal deficit you know is is still big but it's under control you know the the fed is not going to print money as we just said and and you know as as matt has pointed out you know the the last three months of the uh, labor numbers have indicated a continuing reduction in productivity which which means you know a need to get rid of people i i don't see where the where the driver is to get you know inflation to turn around and go up very strongly and and, and obviously last july we started saying this uh and and basically so i don't think i don't think she's she may be a little aggressive but i don't think she's wrong 
And then to Matt's point, Matt, you've said it uh, repeatedly that you see a deterioration in the labor markets and we've spoken about productivity. Another interesting number, more than 1,000 tech companies have laid off 150,000 employees since the start of 2021. You know, they're high-end, well-paid jobs. Of course, we're hearing that they're getting re-employed, but the question is, where are they picking up the jobs and there's a lag time? So there is deterioration in the labor market. Yeah, I mean, what what the Fed is trying to do, as far as I can gather, and this is just me reading their tea leaves, because if you take them at their word, well, you're going to be misguided. And if you take them at their actions, it's not going to match their words. But what it seems like they're trying to do, from my perception, is beat this economy as low as it can go and beat the inflation number as low as it can go before they are forced to pivot, because they're going to be forced to pivot at some point, and they know it. So they're taking advantage of the calm waters to to make as much headway as they can before they have to pivot basically probably without warning and the 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 reality though is is that the numbers are actually on inflation dick is totally right there is not a hint of inflation out there except in numbers that have a lagging component to them everything that's a current number where it's like measuring the last four weeks or the last eight weeks is showing that inflation is basically beaten where the, the biggest component of inflation in the last cpi report was housing and housing is such a lagging indicator because one, they do homeowners equivalent rent, which is a, a calculation based on imputed rents, which is measuring on a 12 month lagging basis, people who are signing lease renewals. Yet you can go to Zillow.com or Realtor.com or, you know, just the, the, the generic New York real estate board and see that lease renewals right now are actually down year on year. It's deflationary for lease renewals. If you're looking, you know, just, um, December to 2023 to December 2022, but that doesn't show up in the numbers that we're going to the owner equivalent rent for another 12 months. So the headline inflation is almost beaten. But I think, I think partially, and you know, I, I blame people like Dick for this. Is partially a lot of people are telling um, uh, Chairman Powell, you don't want to be Burns because Burns thought he was in the same situation, you know, in late 1970s and stopped um, raising interest rates too soon and inflation came back. And so they don't want to pivot too soon. They'd rather overshoot and not become burns and not fall prey to the to the pundit class, which includes us. But they, they want to overshoot, in my mind. I think they think they have one chance, go as far as you can until you're forced to pivot. And then when you pivot, you can announce you've defeated inflation. So how long more will these interest rate rises continue into the next 12 months, Dick, or, or fall or I beyond? Think- yeah, no, I think so. I think so. But I want to go back to the labor numbers again. What, what I'm looking at when I look at the labor numbers is the shift in employment. Where are you losing the jobs and where are you gaining the jobs? And I think that we're going to begin to see uh, a shift away from uh, you know the, the uh, jobs associated with consumption, which I think these tech jobs, w- which are being lost, are associated with, and jobs increasing in the areas related to production. Um, you know, it's it's amazing to think, but it, you know, when World War II ended, one out of every three workers in the United States were working in a manufacturing company, and you know, if you add the people who then took the products that were made and shipped them somewhere around the country for utilization, one out of every two workers in the United States. We're producing and shipping, you know, products made in the United States. You know, I think that we're going to go back 
to numbers of that nature. I think all these tech guys who are incredibly smart, who are losing their jobs in these consumer-oriented tech companies are going to find their way to the defense industry, are going to find their way to the manufacturing sector, and we're going to see breakthroughs of significant value uh, in using technology innovatively in manufacturing. So uh, what, what I'm looking at now when I look at the job numbers is how many people are in which category, and are these categories changing in a fashion that we will be producing more income than consuming more income? And I think it is happening. That gets to your new report, and you set it up really well there, Dick. And I'm just going to add further to that. A recent survey showed that half of American CEOs plan to further reshore operations, and nearly all of them plan to do so this year. And this has also fueled a modernization wave in America, with CEOs in America investing in robotics, automation, and digital workflow tools and the survey was done by exometry forbes and john sorby strategies um and, and the robotics was kind of interesting in modernization because we spoke about um this demographic challenge we have in the globe uh, the drop in the fertility rate and the lack of workers coming into the workforce the way they were a generation or two ago so robotics seems to be part of the way we're going to go on this but You've spoke about these this cycle before, Dick, but you have new numbers and you referred to some of it earlier, uh, trade imbalances and debt numbers and so on. But what's your overall thesis is is very positive for traditional banking. Yes, it is. But I mean, let I, I would since I'm I'm sure that uh, you know most of the listeners are not aware of how bad you know the production issue is. So I'm gonna. I'm going to just, you know, spit out some uh, statistics, which uh, uh, Representative Ro Khanna, uh, who came from, who comes from Silicon Valley, California, uh, you know, prov provided in an article he wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine. But he's saying that since 1998, 70,000 factories in the United States have been closed. Five million jobs have been lost. The trade deficit to China in 1985, before they joined the World Trade Organization, was six billion dollars. Uh, it jumped up to 83 billion when they joined the, the uh, World Trade uh, Organization, and it's 309 billion dollars today. Seven, 3.7 million jobs in the United States went to China uh, from the United States because of our shift. 73 percent of the imports from China are basically manufactured goods. They have jumped ahead of us in technology and telecommunications. We're spending $135 billion on semiconductors and cell phones from China. We're spending $116 billion on machinery, uh, television, cameras, cordless phones, $60 billion, car parts, roughly 30%. Now, when you get away from China, you know, in the steel industry, we were number one. We're, we're now number 20. In terms of production, uh, there's 126,000 jobs lost there. In aluminum, we were number one. We're now number nine. 34,000 jobs lost there. Lithium, to you know, not use old old style, if you will, uh, production. Lithium, China now has 76% of the market. We've got 8%. Rare earths, China has 60% of the market. We've got 16%. We can't live that way. 
This country cannot allow that to continue to occur, which is why these CEOs see an opportunity to take these jobs back to the United States and to grow the production sector. And savvy people in the stock market have picked up on it, which is why defense stocks, as I keep saying, defense stocks and natural resource stocks, you know, went up and why, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, I think a, a, a tremendous recurrence in banking. Uh, and, and I don't know, I, I, I've thrown enough stats at you, but if, if you're not turned off by it yet, if, if you, if you take a look, you can't have the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve growing five times faster than the economy for a period of, you know, 20 years. And it's been happening. It's been happening now for 20 years. You can't have that, you know, because it leads to a massive increase in debt in the economy and in the increase in inflation that we just lived with. So again, the Fed can't be the solution. The Fed does not have the money to be the solution. The banks are the solution. The banks have the money. They know how to fund, you know, the type of production that we're talking about. And that's why I have all of a sudden turned around uh, and decided, you know, I don't care if there's a recession or no recession. I don't care what loan losses are going to be. I just want to buy bank stocks. Two of your other data points in your report, imports of goods from overseas, 3.3 trillion and exports, 2.1 trillion. That's in the latest uh, year to date numbers, I assume. Yes. Um, and then another interesting stat, this is actually mind boggling. In 1945, financial, professional and business services, education and healthcare jobs occupied 21.3% of the U.S. workforce. Today, these occupations account for 46.8% of the jobs, nearly half the jobs. That's right. And see, that's the problem. Those those industries are not producing revenue uh, or products which have a high multiplier effect on the growth of the economy they're they're absorbing they're absorbing the the revenue being produced uh, by other industries so like it or not i mean i don't you know everybody can get as positive as they want about a short-term turnaround in the economy it, it, it's not going to happen it's not going to happen. And therefore, to bet on that in the stock market is a mistake. What you should be investing on as opposed to betting on, if you should, what you should be investing on in the stock market is where are the beneficiaries? Where are the losers? And we know who the beneficiaries are. We know who the losers are. And we've seen that the market is coming around to that understanding. And, and I, I, I repeat all the time. So let me do it one more time. Defense manufacturing, natural resources, winners, tech associated with the consumer, losers, the consumer, losers. Therefore, you should be shifting your money from the losers to the winners, which, which again, savvy investors did all through 2022. And banks now go from the loser category to the winner category because the Fed can't fund where the economy is going to go and the banks can. So, I mean, to, to me, I, I don't want to focus. I don't want to focus on the part of the recession. I'll, I'll, I'll be a force to when it occurs. I don't want to focus on it. I don't want to focus on, you know, what, what has happened. I want to focus on how to reposition myself to benefit by what I think is going to happen. And to me, it's as clear as clear can be. You cannot have 
this country, you know, destroying jobs in the production area and just consuming everything they can get their hands on by borrowing the money to consume it, it can't continue. And I don't think it will. I, I agree with you completely. That which can't continue won't. Um, the one issue, and I love, I love every time I, I, I need to stump you, all I have to say is one word, which is Japan. Um, <laughs> because, because every time you, you, we, we talk about, oh, this won't happen or this can't happen. I, you know, you, you said that, that you can't operate in a world where the balance sheet of the Fed is growing faster than the economy is, is growing. And so I was like, huh, I wonder if that's true about Japan. And lo and behold, Japan <laughs> Japan didn't cross. Their their central bank, the Bank of Japan, started owning more than 100% of GDP on their balance sheet only in 2020. They, up until then, held less than that. As recently as 2010, they only owned about 25% of the GDP debt on their balance sheet. So not that I'm predicting this and not that I'm advocating that it could happen, you know, but one of Bob Farrell's rules is that, um, you know, he has those 10 rules is that exponentially rapidly rising markets can go farther than you think, or they can go, you know, whether it's rising or falling, it goes farther than you think, but it doesn't correct by going sideways. And the Fed probably can grow a lot more than they have if you use Japan as the example, because the equivalent would be a balance sheet closer to 30 or $35 trillion than the the $9 trillion that we're sitting on right now. Well, just to, to, to support your, your view, uh, in 1972, uh, I got a job at, at, at a place, uh, Wertheim and Company, and my boss was a guy named Walter McConnell, and I went running into his office, and he, he was my mentor. The guy was phenomenal, absolutely magnificent uh, guy to work for. Uh, I went into his office and I said, Walter, you know, this, this debt situation is totally out of control. It's totally out of hand. You know, what, what, what is going to happen as a result of it? And he said, someday there'll be a collapse. I don't know if it's going to be next week. I don't know if it's going to be 10 years from now. I don't know if it's going to be in the next generation. Uh, and he was right because we went, <laughs> we went 50 years without a collapse, right? So yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, you can't tell when the, 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 the world has changed and you can't continue to create this debt. And Japan is a conundrum. Uh, I, I would agree with you. Uh, although its currency did get whacked. I mean, it's recovering now, but it did get whacked pretty hard. It's not 100, you know, going down to 99 anymore. Um, so, you know, I I don't know, it, it, you, you know, if I can call the day, the date, and the time, but I'm convinced that we've reached that point. I, I just don't believe that, you know, the, the holder of the world's reserve currency can grow its balance sheet 10 times faster than the economy that that currency comes from. Uh, and, and therefore, I think we will change. Well, some former Fed official in Japan or he was on the Fed board there in Japan once said that the biggest problem facing Japan was its demographic crisis. That's something we don't have here in the US in terms of being able to replenish our labor force, although that's becoming problematic on some level, but it has a declining population that that has played into a lot of the dynamics in the Japanese economy. Well, you know, I, I hate to tell you, but in 2030, I think the deaths in the United States will exceed the births. Uh, we're, we're moving rapidly, rapidly to that point. Uh, also, the, the number of people age 44 to 64 
are actually going to decline over the next five years. Uh, and, and the group of people coming in at 25 to 44 is going to be only one addition for every two additions that occurred in the last you know, uh, if you will, five years. And and we're seeing an absolute explosion in the number of people over 80. Yeah. People over 80, there's going to be 1.1 million more than them. You know, the people under 14 is only going to be 900,000 more of them. We do have a similar problem to Japan in that regard, or China, or Europe. Uh, you know, and, and if we don't, again, I don't believe in, in, in anyone coming into this country. I believe in putting up a wall, but I don't, be, I don't believe we can restrict in, in immigration. We need immigration. It is critical that we get immigration among young people who can go to work in these factories. Yeah who can get us back on track. I mean, luckily, our problem is that the wall is needed to contain the exploding immigration problem we have because that is a good problem to have. I agree with you that it would be much more optimal to have a legal process by which people can come into this country, get their work visas, and be kept track of and pay taxes and become regular parts of the community rather than having to sneak in and then stay hidden and work in the shadows because then you create two economies. You have the the formal economy and the informal economy. And that if you look across the world, countries that have large informal economies tend to have major structural issues. They tend to have less involvement in local governments, local um, buy-in and education, local participation with the police and the fire departments. Like You want to have a legal system. But as much as our birth-death problem and not talking about the the the, the economic model to <laughs> supplement the jobless report, but like the birth death problem we have, as bad as it is, is way better than almost every other country we talk about. Go and look at Germany; they are in a world of hurt. I mean, they're they're you're talking about in ten years having more than fifty percent of their population being over the age of fifty five. Like that is a really bad place to be. I think America's average age, I think, is 34.5, and it's up from, you know, 10 years ago when it was closer to 31. But we are still a young country. You go to Japan, go to China, go to Germany, go to UK, you know, look around the world. We're still one of the younger countries. So as much as it is a problem here, it's less of a problem here than it is in our competitive. Oh, sorry, not to mention Russia. Russia is in way worse situation than China and Germany. I mean, they're, they're, we're, we're in a pretty good spot and we're attractive. So it makes me bullish and I agree completely that I wish we had a more formal system. But the idea that we're not Japan having to create an immigration system from scratch and attract the people. Our problem is making sure that people who come in are kept track of and, and integrate properly. Yes, yeah, so we need uh, sensible immigration policies. I mean, it's it's we can't underestimate the attraction to immigrants uh, of the American system. Um, look at all those innovators and entrepreneurs that have created jobs in America. Elon Musk is just one prime example, but many others. And immigrants come in here and they set up businesses that maybe uh, the local natives may not find the same openings. But so, so that that's one thing we have compared with a lot of these other countries. Speaking of Germany, they opened the floodgates several years ago and they let in one million. Um, that created its own set of issues too. You know, what's interesting is the other side of these numbers, too, because not every country is in the position of the, uh, you know, industrial nations. You know, if we go to Africa, you know, the, the birth rates are still incredibly high. Uh, and, and as I think I've mentioned before, if you take the country of Nigeria, which area-wise is not the biggest country in Africa, but if you take that country, 
in 2050, if the United Nations is correct, there'll be more people in Nigeria than England, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain put together, put together. And, and right behind them uh, is Ethiopia. E Ethiopia. Uh, now, Ethiopia is, is, you know, they lost Somalia. That broke off, and they've got this huge problem with the Tigray province, uh, you know, in terms of the war, which may be in a truce right now. But, you know, you go down to the Congo. In the Congo, the, the birth rate has dropped to, I think, one to, I'm sorry, five to one uh, in terms of the fertility rate of women. It was nine to one as short a period as 20 years ago. So, you know, there there are places, Egypt, there are places where where there is an incredible increase in the population. And, and the question becomes, are, are these people going to stay in those countries? Are they going to go to these countries that are losing population that, you know, are, are, are begging for increased immigrants to take care of the jobs which they, they need filled? Uh, China is betting on these people staying where they are. And therefore, China is lending staggering amounts of money to each one of these countries and, and even in South America. I mean, I can't still get over the fact that, you know, Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, you know, uh, Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, you know, they're, they're anti-American countries. When did that happen? How did that happen? And, and who are they pro-China? Because China keeps giving them all this money. I haven't thought it out, but th th there are going to be tremendous opportunities for investment in the areas where population is growing very rapidly just as there are significant issues developing in the areas where population is not growing very rapidly. Back to your reporting on the new cycle and how the traditional banks in the US are going to be major beneficiaries of this. Um, you get into all of those numbers. So we're talking about the JP Morgans, the cities, Goldman Sachs, and all of those, and then some of the regional banks. They're in the catbird seat. Yeah, well, basically, I, I would prefer, you know, I, I agree, I just raised the rating on Bank of America to a buy and Wells Fargo to a buy. I did not raise the rating on JP Morgan and Citigroup. Uh, and I, I still have, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and, and uh, Morgan Stanley as holds. But the point is, I love the regional banks in the United States. I love the ones in the Midwest most, because if it's true that we're going to go back to a production-oriented economy, these are the banks that are going to provide the money for the growth. One, you know, you're looking at companies like Fifth Third in Cincinnati uh, or, or, or Comerica, it, which is now headquartered in Dallas. But for, for most of its career, I mean, the bank was created by Henry Ford. Uh, it was in, headquartered in, in Detroit. Uh, you know, Regions Financial, which is sitting in Alabama, which is a, a state that produces, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, manufactured product. Uh, you know, uh, the PNC, which is headquartered in in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, th th these are the banks that I think are most likely to see the biggest improvements in their earnings, you know, over the next, uh, you know, what well, was certainly in the quarter that's just coming out, you know, uh, at the end of this week, but over the next few years, I think, you know, Key Corp in Cleveland, uh, you know, the, these, this is where you want to go. This, this is where the manufacturing is going to occur. This is where the banks are located that are going to fund that manufacturing. And, and these are the stocks that I think you want to own. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, 
uh, you know, uh, Mobile. Uh, th- 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 those are the places that, that interest me much more than New York City or Los Angeles or Tallahassee, uh, you know, or Tampa, where I live. I mean, I think, I think there's going to be a, a resurrection of the country in those, in those particular areas. One thing you, you noted in your report also is that the, the banks are flush with capital and cash. They also have the FDIC insurance. Um, and in a high interest rate environment, um, providers who may not benefit as much in that kind of a, a climate such as the fintechs are now seeing money leave and there, many of them are actually shutting up. So the banks are natural recipients of additional funding. My question, of course, is that we saw a lot of high rate of savings during COVID. I mean, we're talking about billions and in the trillions, but a lot of that has been um, spent out and um, in decline. So I'm wondering where is this money coming into the bank stick? I, I guess it's probably that natural tendency of people to go to the banks in very high risk environments with high interest rates. Well, you know, I, I uh, it's twelve trillion dollars in, in deposits in the banks. It's five trillion sitting in uh, money market mutual funds, and uh, there is an unknown number of trillions which uh, you know the Fed is not counting. Uh, and and the question becomes. If you start to worry about the economy and you start to worry about these shifts in jobs, where are you going to put your money? Yeah. Are you going to go put it in a, uh, a speculative investment? Are you going to put it into a company which doesn't offer any guarantees on the uh, loss of that money? Or are you going to put it in the bank where the good old FDIC is guaranteeing your money? So what, what you see in recessions historically, and you're seeing right now, is that you know basically money floats to safety, not return. Uh, or it, it, it's risk-adjusted rate of return, right? And it's the risk adjustment which is more important than the rate of return in, in times that get tough. So I, I don't see any problem whatsoever in uh, the flow of funds into the banking industry. They will increase as times get tougher. And, you know, the banks, you know, have not loaned up its it, their portfolios. I mean, they're sitting with 25% of their assets in cash and and treasuries. I mean, you know, they have an enormous amount of money, which they have yet to put to work in the economy, uh, because manufacturing has not increased to the degree that I'm saying it's going to. So the fund flow into the banks looks pretty solid, doesn't look like it's 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 at risk. Uh, anytime the banks want more deposits, all they have to do is blip up the interest rate, you know, 15, 20 basis points, and they get the deposits. The deposits are sitting in treasuries. They're sitting in cash at the Federal Reserve. So the, the banks are liquid. The ability to lend money in a recovery of the nature that we're describing is is definitely there. So you had the banks reassure investors and consumers and savers just based on what you said, including this FDIC deposit insurance. Is it the FDIC? They don't have to assure them of anything. Mm. All they have to say is, you know, you walk in the bank right on the door. When you walk in the bank, it says FDIC insurance, right? And to everybody in the United States, it means the same thing. I can't lose my money if I put it in the bank. Yeah. Because if the bank goes under, the federal government is going to pay me the money. 
Now, the, the reality is that there's no way in hell that the federal government can 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 pay that money because you know there may be uh, twelve trillion in deposits, but there's only uh, uh, less than a trillion dollars in insurance. So so so, but but the, but the belief is there. Yeah, belief is I can't lose money if it's in the bank. I can lose money if it's in all these other places. And therefore, when people get worried, the money flows into the banks. And when people are exuberant, the money flows out of the banks into, you know, you know, areas of, of higher risk rated return. Uh, so I, I don't worry about the banks having the money to lend. Uh, and, and I don't worry about, you know, the fact that the, the loans are going to be there. And therefore, I, you know, given this theory I have about the change in the nature of the economy, so the banks have got to be the place you go. Yeah. And so bottom line is jobs are coming back and will come back to America. We have this reshoring trend going on. Businesses want to bring these jobs back. It's a whole new cycle. Um, this spend crazy um climate that's that's going to be history you have a line in your notes while everyone decries modern monetary theory in practice both the fed and congress strictly adhere to it in their actions and the result is that in the past 20 years or so the growth of the real economy has been 1.9 percent per year which you mentioned earlier but we're getting away from all of that it's going to be now common sense uh principles at play here I think so. I think, but again, it goes back to where can you make a buck? And if, uh, you know, investors, you know, private equity funds, hedge funds, et cetera, realize that you can make a buck in investing in uh, manufacturing, natural resources and defense, they're going to invest there. And as they pour the money in there, uh, that, you know, gives entrepreneurs the opportunity with that if you will, basic equity beginning to go to the bank and borrow more. And if we have all these tech people moving over from making, <laughs> I always like to use this example, earphones for Apple and, and start making, you know, robotics, you know, which reduce the cost of producing goods, then you've got the, the ideal situation. And again, I, I really believe that that will happen because I believe the return on investment drives where money goes. Uh, the risk-adjusted rate of return on capital drives where money goes. And if that if that is true, that it works the way it's worked forever, you know, we will shift. We will get to the right place and, and our economy will revive. And therefore, I'm not going to worry about the recession, uh, you know, that may occur in, in, in the intermediate term. And I don't give a damn what these guys say at the Fed, because basically they can't do anything but what they're doing because they have ruined the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Also in that report, I point out that in, after 2008, you know, the, the Congress set up this committee to find out what happened in 2008, right? The committee comes back with this incredible negative set of statements, a chapter on how the Federal Reserve totally screwed up. And then we passed the Dodd-Frank bill, which increases the power of the Federal Reserve, and they screw up again. I don't, I think I'm getting to where Rand Paul was, the Texas congressman that wanted to uh, destroy the Fed, that, that the Fed should be destroyed. I mean, they have been so <laughs> incompetent for the last 50 years that, you know, it, 
it, it, it's not fair that that institution should be structured the way it is. Uh, it, there's got to be some rationality brought in. You know, a whole bunch of economists who, who look at these uh, sophisticated, you know, financial models are not in touch with the reality of the world. And I don't care if it's Greenspan with his put. Who, who ever came up with the concept that the Federal Reserve should keep printing and printing and printing and printing money, even though the economy is not growing? Who, who, whoever put that in place? Just the way they, they just turned their head on the regulatory problems that occurred, you know, prior to 2008, just the way in the 1930s, they were too tough. You know, they, they just don't, they don't get it. And they, they are failing the U.S. economy. And that, I think, is very disturbing. I mean, do you do you think this is akin to you know you're 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 hiking up a mountain, the path becomes rocky, the Fed starts printing money to e- ease the path, and now the path is smooth. But the further you go, the more you have to, the further you go down this path of easy money, when you finally course correct, the more painful it is. If they had never started this path back in two thousand, I guess two thousand eight, two thousand nine right. of QE, this invention, you know, like that word quantitative easing i'm not sure who invented it or who coined it but it sure was brilliant because the prior to that you know sophisticated sounding word of you know or phrase quantitative easing it would have been called money printing would have been called it would have been called you know machines go burr like we're printing out the cash and handing it out that you know ben bernanke his nickname long before he became ben bernanke was helicopter ben yeah because he said we could always solve any problem by going up in any deflationary problem by going up and and printing money and throwing it out from helicopters. And it just seems like we're so far off from that sober place that the fed was call it 2005 that will it be painful to go back? Or is there a way over call it multiple decades? It took us 15 to 18 years to get here over 20 years to go back to a zero balance sheet fed, or is that just unrealistic? And this is just going to be the part of part of life going forward. Yeah, it, it, obviously it can be done. Mechanistically, it can be done. Politically, whether it can be done is another question. Whether, whether the United States economy can handle doing that, I'm not sure. But, you know, I mean, mechanistically, just start selling these bonds and treasuries and, 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 and it'll be done. But, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that we're willing to accept the pain that would be associated with doing what should be done. I think, you know, over a 20-year period, I'm hopeful that, you know, we're going to get the Fed's uh, act balance sheet in sync with the U.S. economy. Uh, in fact, I'm betting on it, uh, you know, heavily. But, uh, you know, I-, I don't know that we can get to the ideal position in, in uh, well, I'm an old guy, so I won't say in our lifetimes, but uh, in my in my grandchildren's lifetimes. Uh, but, but it can be done. It can be done. But it would take some sacrifice by ordinary Americans, Dick, right? A, a couple of years of frugal living or cutbacks or something. I mean, Germany did it after the Second World War, obviously with the help of the Marshall Plan. But Germans hunkered under and rebuilt their country and, and made sacrifices. We we could. We're not in that situation, clearly, but we could if the will was there, the political will and leadership, we could make some kind of frugal decisions and really rebuild this country. Yeah, we could. But again, you saw over the past week, the Hatfields and McCoys go at it again, i.e. the Republicans and the Democrats, and now the Republicans against the Republicans. I mean, the, the government <laughs> is so 
wrapped up in the need to inflict pain on their perceived enemies that uh, who knows whether they even know there's an America or that there's a, an economy or that there's something that needs to be done to correct our, our direction. They're, they're just too busy, you know, fighting with each other and trying to get the upper hand and, you know, deciding upon who they want to sue and who should be subpoenaed and all this other stuff. They're not, they're not arguing over, you know, what should be done to resurrect the economy, what should be done to put us on a, on a firmer footing, uh, that seems to be the last thing in the world that they're thinking about. Although I do agree with the uh, the, the idea that we, we should have a balanced budget in five years. Yeah, I was quite a circus there in the um, election of the Speaker. My gosh, it went past midnight. Ted Cruz was the other leader who wants the... Um, abolition of the fed i used to be one of, it's probably still is he, he's always felt that it should be abolished but it's going to be replaced by something right for how to create proper money flows well i mean uh, you know andrew jackson thought it should be replaced by nothing uh which by the way was a mistake but the fact is that um, the current structure of the federal reserve as Rand Paul, and before him, there was another Texas, um, you know, legislator uh, who was a constant thorn in the side of the Fed. And I keep trying to remember his name, but wasn't I can't that Rand's it. dad, Ron? Wasn't it Ron Paul? No, no, Rand Paul was the father. He was the guy. No, Ron Paul is the father. Rand is the current senator. Oh, okay, all right. So, so yeah, well, I'm giving you the wrong name, Ron Paul. Then, but you know, there was someone before Ron Paul who was another Texas populist, uh, you know, a legislator who was constantly fighting with the Fed. Um, and, and, and he defined himself by these fights. And I can't remember his name. But the bottom line is, th th there's something wrong with the structure of a Fed that makes so many mistakes so often that puts the, the economy in jeopardy to such a degree as occurred in 2008. That occurred, you know, now that occurred back in in, in 1929. Uh, that there's got to be a change. There's got to be a change in the structure of the Fed. Now, whether it'll happen or not is another question. Well, we just see over in in Europe and the EU repeating the American mistakes by printing money, and now it's scaling back, and that, and it could, in my view, lead to the ultimate collapse of the EU. They're they're taking the worst of what we've done and trying to impose it on the EU economies. It's tough to say because that could go the other direction. I mean, it could go that it actually unites Europe in a political, in, in a greater political manner than they already united. You know, I'm sorry, look back at the history of the United States. It, it was multiple states with multiple states' debts that got solved at a federal level. And largely, you know, I'm not trying to totally detour our conversation here, but largely when the EU decided to monetize Greece's debts, rather than let Greece default and kind of fall out of the EU, they, they took a big step towards more political unity than not. Because just like America is going down this path and and when you course correct it's really hard to to do but course correction in Europe could be greater unity on a political basis. Yeah, no exactly right. I mean if you take a look at you know the colonial America none of these states wanted to join together in one nation but uh, Alexander Hamilton said look if you join we'll pick up all your debt and, and and we will pay the debt and you won't have to pay any of it. And so they joined but they didn't come together the country didn't come together as a nation until the Civil War. Civil War, you know, we came together as a nation after, you know, the, the, the victory of uh, one side over the other. You know, it, it was, you know, not 
you know, a series, the, the, the people from Maine, Ohio, Pennsylvania, et cetera, fighting the people from South Carolina, Alabama, et cetera. All of a sudden, it was the United States fighting the, you know, the Southern Confederacy. And at the end of it, the United States won and we, we formed this nation. Europe needs an event of that magnitude to create, you know, a, a, a European Union similar to what we have here. And maybe it's, you know, Russia winning in the Ukraine that does it. But I mean, basically, the event that is going to force Europe to come together the way we did uh, hasn't hasn't occurred yet. And they haven't come together yet. And you still have countries like Turkey and Hungary that are fighting you know, the whole concept, you know, uh, of the European Union. I don't know. But I mean, I think what you said is very important. Well, it's too early to tell. I mean, the EU is ticking along. It's relatively stable. We don't know maybe the next economic crisis and the retentions in the periphery nations. We saw the UK pulled out of it, admittedly by a small margin. But I think it was Milton Friedman said, he looked at it and he said the EU, as some of these visionaries had constructed it, was doomed to failure because they're completely different um, entities. All these nation states, different cultures work at different economic speeds. Um, they have different aspirations. They have different historical outlooks. I mean, the original charter for what is now the EU was entirely and radically different. It was, a you know, the European and coal community or whatever they titled it. It was a way to, you know, united on certain um, aspects of trade, but not this deeply integrated union that was never envisaged at the beginning. Well, I think the, I think the people like Mandel saw that, but I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, they're nowhere close to to being what we are here, and and it would be a heck of a lot better for them in the world if they were, uh, but they but they're not, and and they're not. You know, it doesn't look like they're going to be there very. In, in the near future, uh, or by the near future, I mean the next 10 years. So um, I, I don't know, who knows what happens there. I'm well, more interested, to be honest with you, in what's going to happen in Nigeria, Ethiopia, Argentina. Th those, those areas interest me a heck of a lot more. This is not a zero-sum situation. What happens in Africa could dictate or guide what ultimately happens in Europe. I yeah, mean, absolutely. It, like the, the fact that the world is changing outside of your boundaries kind of means you have to change with it or be prepared to change or prepared to get run over. And no one usually stays, you know, is aware they're about to get run over, does it willingly. So change is going to happen, whether, whether they decide to break apart or unite, something's going to change because this can't continue the way it's going where you know, some countries are exporting inf inflation and others are importing deflation and importing labor and exporting products. And, you know, you have such a diverse group of countries over there that either they're going to have to come together politically or it will eventually break apart at the seams. I think you're absolutely right. And then, of course, not to sidetrack too much, uh, we had some tensions in the past 24 hours in Brazil where many of the... Um, supporters of the former president stormed the capital so that's um was quite an interesting dramatic moment i thought it happened here <laughs> yeah i, I feel but like i feel like he's the... hanging out he's hanging out in dick's backyard apparently in orlando the former president of brazil I, I mean, let's let's be honest i mean i think what the press <laughs> is doing is they're 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 totally redefining these words you know insurrections and coups to make riots that yeah. are basically yeah. unserious. You know, I mean, what you, what you had in Washington, D.C., as much as I am disgusted, just like everyone else, yeah. 
it wasn't an actual coup attempt. I mean, the January 6th committee, as much as it was partisan and one-sided and clearly not interested in deter- you know, being, being a neutral arbiter of what happened, made it clear that there was no one that was plotting an overtaking of the government institutions. And I think the same with Brazil. I mean, how do you run a coup from Orlando when apparently you're not even in communication with the people? I, I think the press is just trying to find catnip to try to get people to turn in because, you know, if you look at the institutions that have lost trust, aside from the CDC, the press is the largest one in the last you know two decades of where they used to be trusted to where they are now and now they're just you know they're just basically tabloids and brazil is exciting and it may, reminds people of january 6th so they're trying to pretend yeah. that something that happened in brazilia was a bigger deal than it was in my mind yeah well i don't know if, if this is a metaphor what happened but the former president bolsonaro was hanging out near disney world so it's a little bit of a circus moment about the whole thing <laughs> could be could be quickly dick evs and the auto industry that was a question i wanted to bring up is could you quickly are you optimistic about that the auto industry in america real quick yeah yeah no i i think well right now the cycle is over right and and we're seeing that uh, car sales are coming down car prices are coming down but uh yeah no i think the ev revolution is on very firm ground it took you know five years for the uh, non-tesla companies to get their acts together but apparently there are 20 new models coming on the market uh next year which are ev uh and and the uh, building of these uh you know recharging stations are going to occur all over the united states i think tesla might be toast but uh i i don't think the ev uh, markets are at all well we've run out of time but a program note uh, this thursday at 11 a.m eastern time we're going to do a live webinar uh, with the hosts of Geek Skeezers and Googleization, talking about jobs, money, and markets, uh, Dick and Matt and myself. And um, you can go up on LinkedIn. You'll be able to find us on YouTube, all the various social media platforms, and it's going to be just great. Until next week and episode 52, take care. Thanks for those insights earlier, Dick. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording, January the 10th, 2023, neither Dick nor any member of his household has a financial interest in the debt or equity securities of the various banks he referred to during this episode on his latest research and has not received any compensation from the companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from these companies, and the companies are not investment banking clients of the firm. Dick's written reports on the banks are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com. And additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odiancap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab. All investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.